Hi, you're listening to It Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is how we adapt. That's the focus of It Happened to Me, which wants to help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, co-hosts Kathy Gildenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me. I'm not alone, and neither are you. In this episode, we are focusing on the autoimmune condition, bullous pemphigoid, and hearing from two guests. Our first guest is Dr. Naomi Bishop. Dr. Bishop is a physician, a medical writer, and an editor. She channeled her human physiology fascination with her commitment to helping others achieve optimal health. With a young family in tow, Dr. Bishop completed the required preparatory courses and attended medical school where she graduated as valedictorian of her class. She completed her postgraduate training at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia Cornell, and has cared for children in pediatric intensive care units, PICUs, in several top New York hospitals. Her own diagnosis of BP changed her understanding of what it means to be a patient with a rare chronic disease. Dr. Bishop, welcome to It Happened to Me. Let's start with the basics. Can you tell us what is BP? Bose pemphigoid is an autoimmune disease of the skin where you develop antibodies against the proteins that hold your skin together, that maintain the skin's integrity. And when this happens, the skin, the layers of the skin separate and fluid starts to form and you get blisters. Um, it's also extremely itchy and the blisters can get quite large. Um, it is a chronic disease that is consists of relapses and remissions. And right now, um, the only treatment that has been sort of approved for this disease are steroids. Um, uh, it's extremely rare and, and it can be uh, very difficult to manage. You know, Dr. Bishop, we have talked to many guests who have autoimmune diseases. I happen to have one as well. So welcome to the club, doctor. But autoimmune diseases are really so strange in that the body is attacking itself and it appears to come out of the blue. Can you tell us what happened to you? When did you notice these blisters? So my journey with BP started way back in the summer of 2021 when I started to notice a persistent itching in a spot on my back just beyond the reach of my hand, so I couldn't scratch it. And I remember divining these back scratchers out of kitchen oh. utensils. And oh, I had them positioned strategically throughout my home so that I could oh, my goodness. deal with oh. getting rid of them. And my scalp was also <clears throat> starting to itch, which reminded me of a time in my early teens when I contracted head lice from sharing oh. a hairbrush uh, with the local drummer boy with the long <laughs> hair who I had a mad crush on. Um, <laughs> that was an extreme. Um, and I also remember having dinner with my son at an outdoor Japanese restaurant and he was itching too. And we started comparing our itch levels and treatments that we were using, but of course, none of them was really working too well. And unlike my son, my itching was interrupting my sleep. Oh. It was wakening me and I was having trouble for, and maybe getting two to three hours of sleep at night. Oh no. So um, when did you, when did you decide there was something wrong? 
that it wasn't so, a bug bite or it wasn't dry skin? When did you realize? Right. So um, that was during the summer. By October, I noticed that I was getting read after my 10-mile walk runs in Central Park. I, I'm an avid ex exerciser, and I've been doing it all my life. And I noticed that my walk runs were becoming more walk than run. And I was much more fatigued when I got done. Um, and then something happened in the shower that really frightened me. When the hot water hit my back, I started to squirm and jackknife like a fish on a hook when you pull it out oh, of the water oh, and yeah. you see it flexing. Like, and it was involuntary. It was like when you hit that spot on your funny bone on your elbow. And I really couldn't control it. It 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 disturbed me, and I knew that something was wrong. But but it really came to a head on Halloween um, when I noticed that I was just too tired to make it to the pharmacy to buy candy for the kids. Halloween is oh. my absolute favorite hospital holiday. Oh. Sorry, <laughs> um, and and I just love it. And I found myself crawling to the pharmacy and really just barely able to make it. And I wasn't looking forward to it at all. So um, the next day, I noticed that my neck started to itch, which was a new spot for me. And I had three small red bumps on my neck. Um, and I decided, okay, now it's time to call the doctor and make an appointment so, with the dermatologist. Right. Yes. I'm not big on doctors. I always said I am one. I don't go to one. Um, but I really thought at this point it was interrupting my life enough that I needed some help. So I called um, Mount Sinai Hospital and I pulled the physician card. I said, I'm a physician. I need you know, right. an appointment. And they were able to squeeze me in the next week. Um, but it's such a rare disease that... Did you find a doctor that knew of the d disease at the at the moment you went in, or were there other conditions that they thought it might be? So just by happenstance, Mount Sinai happens to be a center of excellence for the autoimmune blistering diseases. I did for not goodness know this sake. beforehand. Oh, That's incredible. Um, I oh. I was followed there for some other things, and so, and I was also born there. Um, and so I decided that I'd give it a try. And since they were able to give me this appointment, um, I waited that week and kind of dragged myself into the appointment. And the doctor there was very nice and very sympathetic. And he was pretty sure that I had either scabies or bed bugs. Now, I'm a pediatric specialist. I know children. And babies with scabies are in my wheelhouse. And I kind of knew it didn't fit too well. Um, but he was sure. Um, but just to be sure, he did a biopsy. And then he suggested and recommended the treatment um, for scabies, which as you, I don't know if you know, but you have to no. put this cream all over your body and leave it on for 12 hours. And then you oh. have to take out everything in your home put it in the washing machine. If it can't go in the washing machine, you have to put it into big garbage bags. In and the garage. It's, it's, the whole, it's like yeah, fleas it's, for the dark. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely. exactly what they do. Yeah. Right, exactly. So um, that was what he thought was going on. And um, I you know, did the treatment that I was supposed to. Um, and of course, it didn't really work. Um, and he wanted me to follow up with him in two weeks. And um, when I returned two weeks later, um, uh, not only did the treatment not work, work, but I was 10 pounds lighter. I was even more oh, no. deprived. And now oh, no. I had hives all over my body. Huh. Um, oh, my. Oh, no. Um, yeah. So you I got was, worse. So you yes. got worse. Yes. Oh, terrible. And, I was absolutely miserable. He was still sure that this was scabies, um, and he wanted me to um, do another treatment. I neglected to mention that the first biopsy that he did was inconclusive, so hmm. it didn't really help anything. Oh. Um, and so I asked him, 
whether he would do another one because the rash had changed completely. And I thought maybe this second one might be more informative. Um, so he agreed to do that. Um, and he said, go ahead and do your second treatment, which um, uh, I was, okay, I'll give that a shot. And then four days later, my phone rang at 10 o'clock at night. Huh. And now there are very few people who call me and kind of talk at me. Um, and I recognized the number, but this number I didn't recognize. So I figured I would answer it. Um, and it was the dermatologist. Um, oh. And oh. he was speaking in a very soft and subdued voice. And he said, hi, Dr. Bishop. It's Dr. A. Your biopsy results are back and you don't have scabies. And I said, oh, okay, what do I have? And he said, you have bullous pemphigoid. It's an autoimmune disease. Now, I don't remember anything about the rest of the conversation because yes. I was in shock. And uh -huh. it also sounded like he was speaking very far away underwater. His words were all garbled to me. So I really didn't know what it was that he was saying to me. Um, but but I figured that this was, you know, something that I was gonna have to deal with. And so I am a physician and I have access to the literature. And I immediately went to the literature and started reading up on it. Um, he the doctor had given me the um, initial treatment, he put me on prednisone, which is a steroid, a very high dose of it. Oral, so it was oral, yes, ster oral, oral steroids? Oral steroids, What right. dosage, how much were you on? How many milligrams? Uh, 40, but it 40. is one milligram per kilogram for me. I'm, I'm very small. Yes. And, yes. and for someone who's never been on that medication, that's a good juicy dose of a steroid. Yeah. I'm very, I use steroids in my practice to treat asthmatics. And so I'm very familiar um, with with it. And uh, one, one milligram per kilo is a nice juicy dose. Yes. Uh, and then he also put me on doxycycline, which is yes. an antibiotic. antibiotic. Right, but it's actually used for its anti-inflammatory um, right. properties because this is a disease that is extremely inflammatory in nature. And he put me on calcium and vitamin D because when you're on steroids, you have to be on that um, and antihistamines for the itching. Now, before this, the only thing I ever took was vitamins. And so I was not used to taking, you know, my medicine cabinet all of a sudden was filled was with, full. yeah, yeah, no, but not and pills. Yeah. Yeah. But um, do you know, Dr. Bishop, I will yeah. say that compared to many, this is a, fairly quick diagnostic journey. Absolutely. We started with the doctor and while the doctor made the wrong call in the first instance, it was corrected in pretty short order. Absolutely. So you were able to get treatment fairly quickly. I yeah, think you were so lucky to be at Mount which is very encouraging. in yes. our program. It's so yes. lucky you were there. Yes. And so the, what was it the, like for you to finally get a diagnosis that made sense, even if it's not something you wanted to, you were prepared to hear? Right. Um, I just wanted to mention that the average time to diagnosis of this disease is between two and five years. Oh, See, wow. So how lucky you were. And, yeah. And I was diagnosed in two weeks. Um, yes. And so it was pure luck which is unfortunate that it has to be luck, but I was truly one of the lucky ones yes. um, that happened, you know, just by accident. Um, so um, you you were asking me what it was yeah, like. What was it have, like yes. to yes. have some answers, even if they, you know, weren't what you expected to hear? Yeah, well, it was, um, I guess I was glad to have some answers, but um, it was, uh, it changed my life entirely. Um, I was pretty sure that life as I knew it was over. Um, uh, you know, instead of the heroic doctor who was saving, you know, 
critically ill children, all of a sudden I was the patient with a chronic illness that was not going to go away. Um, I was always the caregiver. I was not the one being cared for. And I was not familiar with asking for help. And all of a sudden I was in a position where I had to do that. Um, it, it really shattered my self-image. I had thought of myself as, as, as um, youthful and healthy and with endless stamina. And all of a sudden I was an old woman with a chronic disease and going to doctors was going to be the rest of my life. I, I really felt um, uh, isolated, depressed, anxious, um, and, and that I didn't really know what was going to happen next. Um, it was my, I remember feeling like the world had shrunk down to the size of a pinhole. And, and I didn't go out except to go to the supermarket and the pharmacy. I didn't speak to anyone except for my direct family. Um, I, I, I really felt very um, frightened and alone. Oh, no, oh, it's terrible. Is this because of the pain of the blisters or um, it, were they visible and you were worried what people would think? What, what was causing you to feel this way, doctor? Um, no, I wasn't so much worried. I was fortunate that my face was not affected. And so I, uh -huh. when I went out, I just covered myself, you know, so that uh -huh. people wouldn't see. And when I went, for instance, to have my blood tested and I had to roll up my sleeve, I had to reassure the nurse that this was not something contagious. They didn't have to worry. It was, you know, a chronic disease and, and whatever. Um, uh, but I, I think it was because when you're diagnosed with a rare disease, at least for myself, you feel other than, you feel very separated from all the people around you um, in, in this veil of, of being a sick person um, that you think nobody will really understand what that experience is like. You know, I always thought as a physician, that I was very empathic um, towards my patients. So I took care of cancer patients and all kinds of seriously ill patients, but I had no clue what it was really like to be somebody living with a disease all the time that you knew was not gonna have a cure. Um, it, that was, um, I, I learned that that's a very different experience that most people fortunately don't have. And when it's rare, it's even worse because it's hard to explain to people what's going on if they don't recognize it. You know, I looked okay from the out, you know, from the neck up, I looked okay. And so it was a little difficult to get people to understand it. Did and you find when you explained it to people, were they, um, did they take the time to listen and to show empathy when you so, explained it to yeah. others? Um, so I explained it to my family and they were yes. incredibly supportive. I had a lot of hesitation about explaining it to people in my professional life. I didn't want people to think that they couldn't count on me, even though I was feeling that inside, you know, that people could no longer count on me. I quit my working full time and I only accepted project-based jobs. Um, where I could set up my own schedule because I didn't know when the next bomb was going to drop or I was not going to be able to commit to something. Um, and, and that was a big change in my life. But um, I struggled and still do with um, whether or not I want my professional um, contacts to know that I have this, this problem. Um, how have things changed now? You're talking about your journey to this point. Um, have you been able to cope any differently? Have you been able to change your impression on it? Is Have the treatment started to kick in and work and make a difference in your life? How are you managing day to day now? Well, I'm, I'm much better. I'm happy to say that I learned in April that I'm in remission 
it fully in remission. The treatments that I use fortunately have worked. I'm off of the steroids, which is uh, wonderful. wonderful. I, I was having terrible problems with, I have a weak stomach and they were absolutely leaving me constantly nauseous with reflux. And it, it was really difficult to, on a day-to-day -day basis, the food started to taste metallic and I lost my appetite and it was just very difficult. So getting off of the steroids was was really Huge. a godsend. Yeah. And, and I'm fortunate that the treatment that I found, which is a biologic, um, is working. Um, and uh, I'm not having serious side effects from that. And so I really kind of re-entered, um, you know, the, the world. Wonderful, um, wonderful. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, Doctor, before ahead. we leave um, yeah. and, and discuss your feelings, I wanted so that our listeners know um, what, what were the blisters um are they flat? Are they filled with fluid? Are they filled with blood? Or where did they appear? Just a little bit so we get an understanding of what, what it was like to experience sure. it. Sure. So um, the disease can manifest in several ways, um, which is a bit of a problem because it makes it more difficult to recognize. And mm -hmm. each person has a, a slightly different kind of disease because each person forms their own antibodies against their particular proteins in their skin. And so it's a very individual um, uh, um, appearance to the disease. I had more of a hive-like appearance to my disease. So I had these okay. big, itchy red patches. But the blisters that I did have um, were honey-colored, um, uh, and they were filled with fluid. And... Um, there are a couple of types of these blistering diseases. Bullis pemphigoid is marked by blisters that are tense. So, so they feel like you want to pop them. Um, yeah. mine, mine were small, but they can be quite large also. And they can cover whole areas of, of your body. Um, there are people that need to be hospitalized for treatment of them. Um, until they can get the disease under control. And it can be extremely debilitating. Um, I, I was, you know, fortunate that I treated it early. Um, again, you know, how long you have the disease has some bearing on how easy it is to treat. When, when, when the disease gets all out of control and is allowed to go on for a while, it takes a lot more to be able to to get it under con control. Right. Um, so, um, but I, I think that probably the worst for me was the itching. It is, it is, people say, oh, you have an itchy rash. Okay. This is a kind of itching that's very different than a mosquito bite. It, it's an itching at the level of, of your nerve where mm. You, mm. you have to scratch and it doesn't help. And in fact, the more you itch, the more, you know, the it more itches. you scratch, the more it itches. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. And it's always worse at night. For and this yeah. is something that is, you know, true of this disease is is that people who have bad itching, itch worse at night. Partly mm -hmm. because you don't have things to distract you. You're lying there yes. in bed just itching. Um, and and there are also physiologic reasons why it happens, which I won't go into. But it's it's definitely you know, worse at night. And the itching was making me crazy. Um, it was, it, it was very, very difficult. And um, you talked about the treatment, the treatment of taking oral steroids and a healthy dose that steroids are just a wonder drug. We all know steroids can do amazing things, but it is also extremely powerful. Uh, steroids can also um, leave you sleepless makes Absolutely. you rev it can make you um i've been on massive doses yes, of steroids yeah. for an uh, autoimmune disease and made me frankly weepy yeah um hmm. 
My daughter had the same autoimmune disease as I have. She felt like she could conquer the world. So everybody responds to steroids in a different way. They're not something to be taken willy nilly. And so they're a powerful drug. They work for you, but right. not fun. Absolutely. Not a fun They can treatment. also have um, uh, long lasting effects. They can, there are people who develop yes. diabetes. Bone density. Osteoporosis is another one. Yes. And that famous roid rage, yep. which you can get on a high dose, oh, yes. can make you very aggressive. Very, um, very aggressive. Yes. And there, yes. I agree with you. They're a double-edged sword. And yes. fortunately, I found a doctor who wanted to get me off of them as badly as I wanted to get off of them. And, and that was an interesting experience because my first visit to the specialist, I needed to choose what alternate medication that I wanted to be on without knowing anything about these medications. It was my, you know, she wanted me to make a decision, choose between hmm. IVIG and mycophenolate and, you know, rituximab and, and all of these drugs I knew nothing about. And she wanted to get started on the drugs because the, the non-steroid drugs take a little time to kick in. And so mm -hmm. you want to be able to start them immediately, but deciding what was the right drug for me without any time to research it is also a, a predicament that you yes. people with rare yeah. diseases go in. Was so, this prescriber different than the original person that that gave you the diagnosis? Yes, he was. Yes, and I you went. To, yes, uh -huh. he was a general dermatologist, and he yes. said, "Look." Um, this is not my specialty, but we have specialists. I want to refer but you I to see them. Yeah. And, I and she was, uh, I got an appointment with her in about three weeks, which gave the steroid time to kick in and whatever. And so when, when my appointment time came, I was able to start the steroid bearing treatment, which uh -huh. I, I have to say, I don't yet understand why they don't start that treatment at the same time they start the steroids knowing that you you know that there's going to be a lag time between when the treatment kicks in because in my mind the idea with steroids is just like you're saying you know get on them and then get off them as yeah. quickly as you can yeah. um, you know dr bishop both as a patient and a doctor You've learned so much about BP, but I'm wondering if there's something that you do know now that you wish you had known when you were first diagnosed. There are a couple of things um, I, that I've learned both about the disease and about myself. Um, and um, in terms of the disease, uh, it's a rare disease. I know that. And it, it, is different in everybody. And it's really important to remember so that when people who think they're, you know, doing you a good job by giving you advice on what you should do about your disease, that you should listen, but then verify with some trusted source. There is a lot of information out there that's coming from places that may not be reliable and it's really important to find your trusted sources and 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 use them and especially now with the whole ai chat gpc yes. thing that we know can hallucinate, yes. what they call hallucinate which is make up stuff whenever they can't find an answer that you're looking for um it's especially important i think to to have trusted sources of information um that you can go to that you know will not steer you in the wrong direction. So um, I, I learned that you have to really be careful about the information that you're giving okay. about the diseases. And in terms of myself, I think I learned, you know, that that I needed to prioritize more the things that were important to me that that, you know, I, I in a way felt like I had come face to face with my mortality. In my reading, I came across a mortality rate for bullous pentacoid between 10 and 40%. That's not nothing. Um, and so I, it caused me to want to reevaluate my priorities for my family and my well-being. And, and I, I, the way I think about it is, you know, I guess, I guess it kind of made me become a grown-up. 
you know, that I, I really had to sort of, this is the life that I'm given and decide what's important and, and pursue that. Um, and that that's, a, that's a lesson about yourself and how you live your life. But right. speaking of your lesson about information, that's a really important um, subject because I know um, I too have a very rare disease, a rarer variant of it, a milder form of something called Wolfram syndrome, which is a rare neurodegenerative syndrome. And I know that as especially I'm not a doctor, I wanted to know, I went as soon as I got the diagnosis online to do some research and didn't know if you'd recommend as a doctor, knowing uh, what you know about information and um, the validity of the different sources, where would you seek information? Would you search online? When would you search? After you had some questions answered, after you saw a specialist, after you read something else, what, what would you recommend with specifics for the audience? Well, I, I think as a physician, it, it's a little bit different. For a lay person, um, I think Dr. Google is, um, mm -hmm. uh, you really, again, have to take the information you get with a grain of salt um, and find um, uh, sources that are more reliable. I can go to the medical literature, the peer-reviewed literature, and look up what's happening. But the other place that was really important for me was the IPPF, the International Pemphigus and Pemphigoid Foundation, which is the foundation that was formed for people with bullous pemphigoid and pemphigus vulgaris. And they are phenomenal. I happened to be surfing the net when during this time that I had just gotten my diagnosis. And it was one of the first sites that came up and I went on to it and I read from top to bottom um, uh, everything that I could find about bullous pemphigoid. And that was incredibly helpful. I think um, they also um, uh, set me up with a support group that was oh, in incredibly helpful that. That, I, mm -hmm. that I've made a lot of friends from and, and um, has really been helpful in terms of practical tips um, of, of things to do to manage the day-to-day -day disease with people who, again, um, uh, I can trust because they've all come together. From the same know, place, for, yeah. For, the, yeah. for this support group. Um, and I can't rep recommend the IPPF highly enough. They, they've really, they're tremendous. Um, they do all, all kinds, they host all kinds of webinars um, for patients and also more uh, scientifically oriented research webinars. And, and there are people there who are always available to help and ask questions. Wow. Um, you know, Dr. Bishop, it sounds like you went through a crisis and you've come through it. Um, and you have talked about some coping strategies. Now you've just mentioned a support group going online uh, talking to uh, other people who have this disease. What other things, and you, you, you rearranged your life um, and focused on, it sounds like the positive. What other coping mechanisms have you employed that you think might be helpful for our listeners? Um, I look, consider myself very fortunate. I, I look and... and um, uh, for instance, I participate in a Facebook group uh, called the Bullets Pemphigoid Warriors, um, knowing that these are just people with the disease um, who are uh, giving their opinions about treatments and talking about um, uh, things that they're trying and knowing that I need to be, you know, cautious about what, what they're telling me. But I'm learning that um, there are people who have this disease much more severely than I have, and that I should be very grateful that I, you know, found my diagnosis quickly and found a treatment that worked, um, and and that 
um, just taking each day, you know, as it comes, knowing that I can't control sometimes what happens and asking why me is not helpful at all. Um, and just taking, um, doing the things I enjoy and being grateful that I can still enjoy doing them. I'm, I'm back to my free disease walk runs in the park, which are my oh, best. Wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Oh, yes. Yeah. I would oh, have to say wonderful. that, that exercise is one of, for me, one of the most important coping mechanisms that yeah. I have it relieves stress and it makes you feel some control um, in a situation where, you know, you don't have total control. And so, um, so I would recommend everybody get out and take a walk. You don't have to be, you know, an Olympic athlete, but just getting out into the fresh air um, is, is, has been a very important coping mechanism for me. Dr. And Bishop, I think your advocacy is so admirable. And I think that's another coping skill that you have displayed mm -hmm. because you really help others who have this disease. Hearing how you've gone through the beginnings of uh, an itch that you couldn't understand, then pain, then sleeplessness, uh, lack of energy, and we've gone through your journey with you. And I feel that we're at the at a new place in your journey. Um, and each of us will go on a journey like this. And you've described it in such an articulate way, doctor. I, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest today on It Happened to Me and helping all our listeners know there is a life after a diagnosis, regardless of the diagnosis. And you've taught us how to make that life full. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Bishop. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure to share some time with you about my journey. Our second guest is Shelly Gerson. Shelly is the Associate Director of Global Patient Advocacy at Argenics. Shelly leads the advocacy efforts for alternative treatment for people living with the autoimmune dermatological and hematological diseases. Previously, she worked as a patient advocate at Sanofi and Biogen. Prior to working in the biotech industry, Shelly was a licensed counselor and a private practice therapist. Shelly lives with a severe form of hemophilia called hemophilia A. So she also has a personal perspective of being a patient advocate herself. Welcome to It Happened to Me, I'm Not Alone and Neither Are You. We're so happy to have you here today, Shelley. Let's start at the beginning. What is your role at Argenix and how did you come to this role? Thank you, Kathy, I'm so glad to be here. My role is to support the communities of people who live with autoimmune hematological and dermatological conditions in which Argenix is focusing their research on. So for example, like Naomi, we do have research in bolus pemphigoid. So while we are doing the research, my job is to connect with the community, to understand their experiences, to understand what needs they have, what resources they need, and very importantly, to bring awareness to the rest of the world, but importantly, to the Argenics community of employees so they understand who they are working for every single day. Wow, that's great. Now, what is Argenix hoping to learn from engaging with people with BP and their caregivers? Well, it's very important for us to really understand every step of the patient journey from before diagnosis, from the moment they started having any type of symptom, all the way to diagnosis, and through treatment and to where they are today and understand it in great detail and understanding the nuances. And from that information, 
if we're able to inform our protocols for our clinical trials, and we're also able to see how we can partner with community organizations that exist just to support those communities of people living with these conditions. Hmm. Now, Shelly, how do you get medication approved for a condition? It all really starts with a question that a scientist somewhere asks about a particular process, usually a biological process in the human body, and how they might pull and apply innovative technologies to that understanding and create new medications, which is really what the biotech field is. And once that um, is put together as a new innovation, there's a whole series of steps that have to happen to prove that that concept even is correct. Then uh, we have to prove that the efficacy and safety of that particular new molecule um, are present to the expected level so that people are not harmed by taking this. And that's usually done in a group of healthy individuals. And then we have to apply the same guidance and uh, research to people who live with the condition in phase two studies, where we have a smaller group of people who very courageously uh, volunteer to put themselves in a clinical trial where they're given the medication and the observers or the investigators are looking to see what the efficacy of the molecule or the medicine is and the safety, very importantly, the safety. And that all of these information has to go to the FDA and the FDA has to look at it every step of the way. So Shelly, um, Argenix now has a clinical trial for um, people with uh, BP. What stage is it in? We are in a phase two, three. So it's a blend oh. of a phase two where we um, look for efficacy and safety in a smaller group of patients. And then when we get those data that support that it's safe and efficacious, then we can widen the group of patients who are using the medication, the investigational medication, uh, for BP to a larger group of people, and we continue to study what happens in that community of people who have volunteered to be in the study. So how many people are in this clinical trial right now? Well, right now we have a little more than 50 people enrolled, okay. but we're really hoping to get uh, more than that. We're really hoping to get upwards of 150 plus globally. But you know, with rare disease, it's very difficult to uh, even meet somebody with BP. You might go your whole life and never know anybody with BP. But to well, we're going to spread. BP. We're going to spread the word. Our listeners are going to spread the word for for our genics to get people to sign up. Tell me, what is the role of the patients in the clinical trial? The role of the patient is uh, critical because without the patient, none of these trials will happen. New medications would not be developed without these people who participate. The role of the patient is really to talk to their doctor, let them know they're interested in uh, the study. The doctor will look at the um, criteria for participation determine whether or not they meet the criteria, and then they will connect with No Rare, who's working with Argenix to, again, look at the patient's um, history and medical information. And No Rare connects those interested individuals to a primary investigator. And from there, the primary investigator asks those same questions. Is this the type of BP patient we need in the trial. And after that, they'd need to go to various visits and have home visits occasionally and take the investigational medication or perhaps a placebo. But we should clarify that in the, in the next few minutes if we can. So 
patients um, self-select, you say, in the first instance by going to their doctors? Is that, that's what I hear you say. And then yes. their doctors propose them to the researcher. That's how it is, that's how it starts. So if a listener uh, to the podcast right now has BP, they could actually go to their doctor and ask their doctor to propose them to the researcher. Is that how it works? Well, I'm glad you asked that clarification question because uh, at Argenix, we don't ever want to interrupt the relationship between the patient and the doctor. So we always advise people to talk to their doctor about anything related to their condition. Um, however, perhaps a person does not have uh, a lot of time or too much time before their next doctor appointment, and they'd like to know now if they uh, would be a good candidate. They could call No Rare, which the information will be provided in the show notes, and they could talk to the No Rare uh, advisors who are very well trained and knowledgeable about the study, and they can connect them with the primary investigator that's closest to them, and then see if they're eligible for the trial. And then and they can what talk happens, to their doctor. I was going to say, what happens if the patient goes to their doctor and works with their doctor to get uh, into the study? How, did the, how does it then, how does the researcher kick in to help make the decision that in fact this participant would be good for the study? Right. It's really as simple as um, being connected to the primary investigator, the, they ask for some basic information medically about their experience with bolus pemphigoid. They'll ask for certain types of test results. They may ask for doctor's notes, um, and they'll gather all of that information, and that primary investigator will want to see the person with BP who experiences lesions on their skin, if indeed that they have the right amount, the right size of the lesions, because we do need people who are experiencing a flare um, in order to be able to determine if the medication would work to improve their condition. That makes sense. So the researchers have the final say, is that what you're saying? Yes, actually, the patients have the final say because they yes. can go through all of that. And then when they do the consent process yes. at this site, which would be the, the primary investigators um, or the study coordinator will go through all of the information. And it's important for everyone to know that at any point, uh, the patient can say, you know what, I don't want to do this. So even if you're done all of that discussion with your doctor, with the investigator, and you're getting ready to sign the consent, and for whatever reason, it doesn't, you don't even have to have a reason, you can say, you know what, I don't want to do it, and you can decline, and that's okay. And that it can occur at any time during the hmm. study. That's really good to know. But what happens if someone is doing well on the investigational medication, but the study ends. And how long does it take for medication generally to get approved for use? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, each different medication that is in a clinical trial has a different time period in terms of getting approved by the FDA. So every drug is different. Um, every trial is different. If a person is having success in the phase three clinical trial, and now all we're waiting for is for Argenics to bring the data to the FDA for the FDA to review and make a decision, um, we often have open label extension studies, which mm -hmm. are opened after the phase three so that they can continue to take the medicine but they also need to continue to meet with the investigators to share how they're doing, any safety issues that may have uh, arisen during that time, um, and just to see how they're doing. Oh, that's I, great. Yes, that's and great. I, if, I would recommend that anyone for going into any study, though, ask that question. 
if they have, they the have open, an open label extension study. Wonderful Good to, to know. know. Um, now, what resources are you aware of that might be helpful to people impacted by bolus pemphigoid? I, it's very exciting because this particular community of individuals living with a very, very overwhelming and sometimes devastating condition has a very strong resource in the foundation called the International Pemphigus and Pemphigoid Foundation, otherwise known as IPPF. It is an organization run by people who have either had bullous pemphigoid or some other type of bullous or blistering autoimmune disorders. And they offer a robust menu of supports, resources, and services. And the people that work there are amazing. I, I, I feel like I, I've gotten a gift in getting to work with these people. And I know people with bullous pemphigoid would get so much from reaching out to them. Oh, that's wow. wonderful information. I thank you so much. Shelly, it's great having you as a guest today on It Happened to Me, I'm Not Alone and Neither Are You. You've helped educate us about medication and clinical trials. Shelly and Dr. Bishop together, you have raised awareness for BP. Thank you very much for being our guests today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Shelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact form on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app like Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenge community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. I'm Kira Deneen from DNA Today, and I serve as our executive producer and marketing lead. Amanda Andrioli is our associate producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone, and neither are you.